Your work, brethren, is to set your church on fire somehow. You may do it by speaking to the whole of the members, or you may do it by speaking to a few choice spirits, but you must do it somehow. Have a secret society for the sacred purpose. Turn yourself into a band of celestial Fenians whose aim it is to set the whole church on fire. If you do so, the devil will not like it, and you will cause him such disquiet that he will seek the utter breakup of the union, and that is just what we want. We do not desire anything but war to the knife between the church and the world and all its habits and customs. But again I say, all this will take time. I have seen some fellows run so fast at first that they have soon become like broken-winded horses, and truly that is a pitiable sight. So take time, brethren, and do not look for everything you desire to be secured all at once. I suppose that in most places there is a prayer meeting on Monday night. If you want your people as well as yourself to be soul winners, try and keep up the prayer meetings all you can. Do not be like certain ministers in the suburbs of London who say they cannot get the people out to a prayer meeting and a lecture too, so they have one weeknight meeting for prayer at which they give a short address. One lazy man said the other day that the weeknight addresses were almost as bad as delivering a sermon, so he has a prayer meeting and a lecture combined in one, and it is neither a prayer meeting nor a lecture. It is neither fish, flesh, fowl, nor good red hearing. And soon he will give it up because he says it is no good, and I am sure the people think so too. And after that, why should he not give up one of the Sunday services? The same reasoning might apply to that as to the weeknight meeting. I saw in an American paper today the following paragraph. The well-known fact is again going the rounds that in Mr. Spurgeon's church in London, the regular hearers absent themselves one Sunday evening every three months, and the house is given up to strangers. English boasting is excluded in this matter. Our American Christianity is of so noble a type that hosts of our people give up their pews to strangers every Sunday night in the year. I hope it will not be so with your people, brethren, either with respect to the Sabbath services or the prayer meetings. If I were you, I would make that prayer meeting a special feature of my ministry. Let it be such a prayer meeting that there is not the like of it within 7,000 miles. Do not go walking into the prayer meeting as so many do to say anything or nothing that may occur to you at the moment. But do your best to make the meeting interesting to all who are there. And do not hesitate to tell good Mr. Snooks that God helping you, he shall not pray for five and twenty minutes. Earnestly entreat him to cut it short, and if he does not, then stop him. If a man came into my house intending to cut my wife's throat, I would reason with him as to the wrong of it, and then I would effectually prevent him from doing her any harm. And I love the church almost as much as I love my dear wife. So if a man will pray long, he may pray long somewhere else, but not at the meeting over which I am presiding. Tell him to finish it up at home if he cannot pray in public for a reasonable length of time. If the people seem dull and heavy, get them to sing moody and sand-key hymns, and then, when they sing them all by heart, 
do not have any more moody and thanky for a time, but go back to your own hymn book. Keep up the prayer meeting, whatever else flags. It is the great business evening of the week, the best service between Sabbaths. Be you sure to make it so. If you find that your people cannot come in the evening, try and have a prayer meeting when they come home. You might get a good meeting in the country at half past four in the morning. Why not? You would get more people at five o'clock in the morning than you would at five o'clock at the other end of the day. I believe that a prayer meeting at six o'clock in the morning among agricultural people would attract many. They would drop in and just have a few words of prayer and be glad of the opportunity. Or you might have it at twelve o'clock at night. You would find some people out then whom you could not get at any other time. Try one o'clock, or two o'clock, or three o'clock, or any hour of the day or night, so as somehow or other to get the people out to pray. And if they cannot be induced to come to the meetings, go to their house and say, I am going to have a prayer meeting in your parlor. Oh dear, my wife will be an estate. Oh no, tell her not to trouble, for we can go into the coach house or garden or anywhere, but we must have a prayer meeting here. If they will not come to the prayer meeting, we must go to them. Suppose that fifty of us go trudging down the street and hold a meeting in the open air. Well, there might be many worse things than that. Remember how the woman fought the liquor sellers in America when they prayed them out of the traffic. If we cannot stir the people without going to extraordinary things in the name of all that is good and great, let us do extraordinary things. Somehow we must keep up the prayer meetings, for they are at the very secret source of the power with God and with men. We must always set an earnest example ourselves. A slow coach minister will not have a lively, zealous church, I am sure. A man who is indifferent, or who does his work as if he took it as easily as he could, ought not to expect to have a people around him who are in earnest about the salvation of souls. I know that you, brethren, desire to have about you a band of Christians who long for the salvation of their friends and neighbors, a set of people who will be always expecting that God will bless the preaching of your sermons, who will watch the countenances of your hearers to see if they are getting impressed, and who will be sorely distressed if there are no conversions, and greatly troubled if souls are not saved. Perhaps they would not complain to you if that were the case, but they would cry to God on your behalf. Possibly they would also speak to you about the matter. I remember one of my deacons saying to me as we were going down to the communion one Sabbath evening, when we had only fourteen to receive into the church. Governor, this won't pay. He had been accustomed to have forty or fifty every month, and the good man was not satisfied with a smaller number. I agreed with him that we must have more than that in the future, if it was possible. I suppose some brethren would have felt annoyed to have anything like that remark made to them. But I was delighted with what my good deacon said, for it was just what I myself felt. Then next, we want around us Christians who are willing to do all they can to help in the work of winning souls. There are numbers of people who cannot be reached by the pastor. You must try to get some Christian workers who will buttonhole people. You know what I mean. 
it is pretty close work when you hold a friend by a lock of his hair or by his coat button. Absalom did not find it easy to get away when he was caught in the oak by the hair of his head. So try to get at close quarters with sinners. Talk gently to them till you have whispered them into the kingdom of heaven, till you have told into their ears the blessed story that will bring peace and joy to their heart. We want in the church of Christ a band of well-trained sharpshooters who will pick the people out individually and be always on the watch for all who come into the place, not annoying them, but making sure that they do not go away without having had a personal warning, a personal invitation, and a personal exhortation to come to Christ. We want to train all our people for this service, so as to make salvation armies out of them. Every man, woman, or child who is in our churches should be set to work for the Lord. Then they will not relish the fine sermons that the Americans seem to delight in so much, but they will say, Pooh! Flummery! We don't want that kind of thing. What do people who are at work in the harvest field want with thunder and lightning? They want just to rest a while under the tree, to wipe the sweat from their foreheads, to refresh themselves after their toil, and then to get to work again. Our preaching ought to be like the address of a commander-in-chief to his army. There are the enemy. Do not let me know where they are tomorrow. Something short, something sweet, something that stirs and impresses them, is what our people need. We are sure to get a blessing we are seeking when the whole atmosphere in which we are living is favorable to soul winning. I remember one of our friends saying to me one evening, There will be sure to be a blessing tonight. There is such a lot of do about. May you often know what it is to preach where there is plenty of do. The Irishman said that it was no use to irrigate while the sun was shining, for he had noticed that whenever it rained there were clouds about, so that the sun was hidden. There was a great deal of sense in that observation more than appears at first sight, as there usually is in Hibernian statements. The shower benefits the plants because everything is suitable for the rain to come down. The shaded sky, the humidity of the atmosphere, the general feeling of everything is damp all around. But if you were to pour the same quantity of water down while the sun was shining brightly, the leaves would probably be turned yellow, and in the heat they would shrivel and die. Any gardener will tell you that he is always careful to water the flowers in the evening when the sun is off them. This is the reason why irrigation, however well it is done, is not so beneficial as the rain. There must be a favorable influence in the whole atmosphere if the plants and flowers are to derive benefit from the moistening. It is just so in spiritual things. I have often noticed that when God blesses my ministry to an unusual extent, the people in general are in a praying mood. It is a grand thing to preach in an atmosphere full of the dew of the Spirit. I know what it is to preach with it, and alas, I know what it is to preach without it. Then it is like Geboa, when there was no dew nor rain. You may preach, and you may hope that God will bless your message, but it is no use. I hope it will not be so with you, brethren. Perhaps your lot will be cast where some dear brother has long been toiling and praying 
in laboring for the Lord, and you will find all the people just ready for the blessing. I often feel when I go out to preach that there is no credit due to me, for everything is in my favor. There sit the good folk with their mouths open, waiting for the blessing. Almost everybody there is expecting me to say something good, and because they are all looking for it, it does them good. And when I am gone, they keep on praying for the blessing, and they get it. When a man is put on a horse that runs away with him, he must ride. That is just how it has frequently been with me. The blessing has been given because all the surroundings were favorable. You may often trace the happy results not only to the preacher's discourse, but to all the circumstances connected with its delivery. It was so with Peter's sermon that brought 3,000 souls to Christ on the day of Pentecost. There never was a better sermon preached. It was plain, personal message likely to convince people of the sin of their treatment of the Savior in putting him to death. But I do not attribute the conversions to the apostles' words alone, for there were clouds about the whole atmosphere was damp, and, as my friend has said to me, there was plenty of dew about. Had not the disciples been long continuing in prayer and supplication for the descent of the Spirit, and had not the Holy Ghost descended upon every one of them, as well as upon Peter? In the fullness of time, the Pentecostal blessing was poured out most copiously. Whenever a church gets into the same state as that of the apostles and disciples at that memorable period, the whole heavenly electricity is concentrated at that particular spot. Yet you remember that even Christ himself could not do many mighty works in some places because of the people's unbelief, and I am sure that all his servants who are thoroughly in earnest are at times hampered in the same way. Some of our brethren who are here have, I fear, a worldly, Christless people Still, I am not sure that they ought to run away from them. I think that, if possible, they should stop and try to make them more Christ-like. It is true that I have had the other sort of experience, as well as the joyous one I have been describing. I remember preaching one night in a place where they had not had a minister for some time. When I reached the chapel, I did not have any kind of welcome. The authorities were to receive monetary benefit if nothing else, from my visit, but they did not welcome me at all. They said, in fact, that there had been a majority at the church meeting in favor of inviting me, but the deacons did not approve of it because they did not think I was sound. There were some brethren and sisters from other churches there. They seemed pleased and profited, but the people who belonged to the place did not get a blessing. They had not expected one, so of course they did not receive it. When the service was over, I went into the vestry, and there stood the two deacons, one on each side of the mantelpiece. I said to them, Are you the deacons? Yes, they answered. The church does not prosper, does it? I asked. No, they replied. I should not think it would with such deacons, I said. Did I know anything about them? they asked. No, I said, but I did not know anything in their favor. I thought that if I could not get at them in the mass, I would try what I could do with one or two. I was glad to know that my sermon or my remarks afterwards led to an improvement, and there is one of our brethren there in doing well to this day. 
One of the deacons was so irritated by what I said that he left the place, but the other deacon was irritated the right way, so that he remained there and labored and prayed until better days came. It is hard when you are rowing against wind and tide, but it is worse even than that if you have a horse on the bank pulling a rope and dragging your boat over the way. Well, never mind, brethren, if that is your case, but work away all the harder and pull the horse into the water. Still remember that when once a favorable atmosphere is created, then the difficulty is to maintain it. You notice that I said, when the atmosphere is created, and that expression reminds us how little we can do, or rather we can do nothing without God, for it is He who has to do with atmospheres. He alone can create them and maintain them. Therefore our eyes must be continually lifted up to Him, whence cometh all our help. It may happen that some of you do preach very earnestly and well in sermons that are likely to be blessed and yet do not see sinners saved. Well, do not leave off preaching, but say to yourself, I must try to gather around me a number of people who will be all praying with me and for me, and who will talk to their friends about the things of God, and who will so live and labor that the Lord will give a blessed shower of grace, because all the surroundings are suitable thereunto, and help to make the blessing come. I have heard ministers say that when they have preached in the tabernacle, there has been something in the congregation that has had a wonderfully powerful effect upon them. I think it is because we have good prayer meetings, because there is an earnest spirit of prayer among the people, and because so many of them are on the watch for souls. There is one brother especially who is always looking after my hearers who have been impressed. I call him my hunting dog and he is ever ready to pick up the birds I have shot and bring them to me. I have known him to waylay them one after another that he might bring them to Jesus, and I rejoice that I have other friends of this kind. When our brethren Fullerton and Smith had been conducting some special services for a very eminent preacher who is in the habit of using rather long words, he said that the evangelists had the faculty for the precipitation of decision. He meant that the Lord blessed them in bringing men to decision for Christ. It is a grand thing when a man has the faculty for the precipitation of decision, but it is an equally grand thing when he has a number of people around him who say to each hearer after every service, Well, friend, did you enjoy the discourse? Was there something in it for you? Are you saved? Do you know the way of salvation? Always have your Bible ready and turn to the passage you want to quote to the inquirers. I often noticed that friend of mine of whom I spoke just now and he seemed to me to open his Bible at most appropriate passages. He appeared to have them all ready and handy so that he would be sure to hit on the right texts. You know the sort of text I mean, just those that a seeking soul wants. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Well, this brother has a number of such passages printed in bold type and fastened inside his Bible so that he can refer to the right one in a moment and many troubled souls has he thus led to the Savior. You will not be unwise if you adopt some method as he has found so exceedingly helpful. Now lastly, brethren, do not be afraid when you go to a place and find it in a very bad condition. It is a fine thing for a young man to begin with a real downright bad prospect, for with the right kind of work there must come an improvement some time or other. If the chapel is all but empty when you go to it, it cannot well be in a much worse state than that, and the probability is that you will be the means of bringing some into the church, and so making matters better. If there is any place where I would choose to labor, it would be just on the borders of the infernal lake, for I really believe that it would bring more glory to God to work among those who are accounted the worst of sinners. If your ministry is blessed to such people as these, they will be likely to cling to you through your whole life. But the very worst sort of people are those who have long been professing Christians, but who are destitute of grace, having a name to live, and yet being dead. Alas, there are people like that among our deacons and among our church members, and we cannot get them out. And as long as they remain, they exert a most baneful influence. It is dreadful to have dead members where every single part of the body should be instinct with divine life. Yet in many cases it is so, and we are powerless to cure the evil. We must let the tares grow until the harvest. But the best thing to do when you cannot root up the tares is to water the wheat, for there is nothing that will keep back the tares like good strong wheat. I have known ungodly men who have had the place made so hot for them that they have been glad to clear right out of the church. They have said, The preaching is too strong for us, and these people are too puritanical and too strict to suit us. What a blessing it is when that is the case. We did not wish to drive them away by preaching the truth, but as they went of their own accord, we certainly do not want them back, and we will leave them where they are, praying the Lord, in the greatness of his grace, to turn them from the error of their ways, and to bring them to himself, and then we shall be glad to have them back with us, to live and labor for the Lord. Chapter 7 Page 49 How to Raise the Dead Fellow laborers in the vineyard of the Lord, let me call your attention to a most instructive miracle wrought by the prophet Elisha as recorded in the fourth chapter of the second book of Kings. The hospitality of the Shunammite woman had been rewarded by the gift of a son, but alas, all earthly mercies are of an uncertain tenure and after certain days the child fell sick and died. The distressed but believing mother hastened at once to the man of God. Through him God had spoken the promise which fulfilled her heart's desire, and she resolved to plead her case with him, that he might lay it before his divine master, and obtain for her an answer of peace. Elisha's action is recorded in the following verses. Then he said to Gehizi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thy hand, and go thy way. 
If thou meet any man, salute him not. If any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead, and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up, and lay upon the child, and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she had come in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet, and bowed herself to the ground, and took up her son, and went out. Second Kings 4, verses 29-37 The proposition of Elisha in this case is exactly your position, brethren, in relation to your work for Christ. Elisha had to deal with a dead child. It is true that, in his instance, it was natural death. But the death with which you have to come in contact is not the less real death because it is spiritual. The boys and girls in your classes are, as surely as grown-up people, dead in trespasses and sin. May none of you fail fully to realize the state in which all human beings are naturally found. Unless you have a very clear sense of the utter ruin and spiritual death of your children, you will be incapable of being made a blessing to them. Go to them, I pray you, not as to sleepers, whom you can, by your own power, awaken from their slumber, but as to spiritual corpses who can only be quickened by a power divine. Elisha's great object was not to cleanse the dead body, or embalm it with spices, or wrap it in fine linen, or place it in an appropriate posture, and then leave it still a corpse. He aimed at nothing less than the restoration of the child to life. Beloved teachers, May you never be content with aiming at secondary benefits or even with realizing them. May you strive for the grandest of all ends, the salvation of immortal souls. Your business is not merely to teach the children in your classes to read the Bible, not barely to inculcate the duties of morality, nor even to instruct them in the mere letter of the gospel, but your high calling is to be the means in the hands of God of bringing life from heaven to dead souls. Your teaching on the Lord's Day will have been a failure if your children remain dead in sin. In the case of the secular teacher, the child's fair proficiency and knowledge will prove that the instructor has not lost his pains. But in your case, even though your youthful charges should grow up to be respectable members of society, though they should become regular attenders upon the means of grace, you will not feel that your petitions to heaven have been answered, nor your desires granted to you, nor your highest ends attained unless something more is done, unless in fact it can be said of your children, the Lord hath quickened them together with Christ. 
Resurrection, then, is your aim. To raise the dead is our mission. We are like Peter at Joppa, or Paul at Troas. We have a young Dorcas, or Eutychus, to bring to life. How is so strange a work to be achieved? If we yield to unbelief, we shall be staggered by the evident fact that the work to which the Lord has called us is quite beyond our own personal power. We cannot raise the dead. If asked to do so, we might each one of us, like the King of Israel, rend our clothes and say, Am I God to kill and to make alive? We are, however, no more powerless than Elisha, for he himself could not restore the Shunammite's son. It is true that we by ourselves cannot bring the dead hearts of our scholars to palpitate with spiritual life, but a Paul or an Apollos would have been equally as powerless. Need this fact discourage us? Does it not rather direct us to our true power by shutting us out from our own fancied might? I trust we are all of us already aware that the man who lives in the region of faith dwells in the realm of miracles. Faith trades in marvels, and her merchandise is with wonders. Faith, mighty faith, the promises sees, and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities, and cries, It shall be done. Elisha was no common man now that God's Spirit was upon him, calling him to God's work and aiding him in it. And you, devoted, anxious, prayerful teacher, remain no longer a common being. You have become, in a spiritual manner, the temple of the Holy Ghost. God dwelleth in you, and you by faith have entered upon a career of a wonder-worker. You are sent into the world not to do the things which are possible to men, but those impossibilities which worketh by His Spirit, by the means of His believing people. You are to work miracles, to do miracles. You are not, therefore, to look upon the restoration of these dead children, which in God's name you are called to bring about, as being a thing unlikely or difficult when you remember who it is that works by your feeble instrumentality. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Unbelief will whisper to you as you mark the wicked giddiness and early obstinacy of your children. Can these dry bones live? But your answer must be, O Lord, thou knowest. Committing all cases to the Almighty hand, it is yours to prophesy to the dry bones and to the heavenly wind, and ere long you too shall see in the valley of your vision the signal triumph of life over death. Let us take up at this moment our true position and let us realize it. We have dead children before us, and our souls yearn to bring them to life. We confess that all quickening must be wrought by the Lord alone, and our humble petition is that if the Lord will use us in connection with his miracles of grace, he would now show us what he would have us to do. It would have been well if Elisha had recollected that he was once the servant of Elijah, and had so studied his master's example as to have imitated it. If so, he would not have sent Gehazi with a staff, but would have done at once what, at last, he was constrained to do. In the first book of Kings, at the seventeenth chapter, you will find the story of Elijah's raising a dead child, and you will see there 
that Elijah, the master, had left a complete example to his servant. And it was not until Elisha followed it in all respects that the miraculous power was manifested. It had been wise, I say, if Elisha had, at the outset, imitated the example of the master whose mantle he wore. With far more force may I say to you, my fellow servants, that it will be well for us if as teachers we imitate our master, if we study the modes and methods of our glorified master and learn at his feet the art of winning souls. Just as he came in deepest sympathy into the nearest contact with our wretched humanity and condescended to stoop to our sorrowful condition, so must we come near to the souls with whom we have to deal, yearn over them with his yearning, weep over them with his tears, if we would see them raised from the state of sin. Only by imitating the spirit and manner of the Lord Jesus shall we become wise to win souls. Forgetting this, however, Elisha would fain strike out a course for himself which would more clearly display his own prophetic dignity. He gave his staff into the hand of Gehizi, his servant, and bade him lay it upon the child as if he felt that the divine power was so plenteously upon him that it would work in any way, and consequently his own personal presence and efforts might be dispensed with. The Lord's thoughts were not so. I am afraid that very often the truth which we deliver from the pulpit, and doubtless it is much the same in your cases, is a thing which is extraneous and out of ourselves, like a staff which we hold in our hand, but which is not a part of ourselves. We take doctrinal or practical truth as Gehazi did the staff and lay it upon the face of the child, but we ourselves do not agonize for its soul. We try this doctrine and that truth, this antidote and the other illustration, this way of teaching a lesson and that manner of delivering an address. But so long as ever the truth which we deliver is a matter apart from ourselves, and unconnected with our innermost being, so long it will have no more effect upon a dead soul than Elisha's staff had upon the dead child. Alas, I fear I have frequently preached the gospel in this place. I have been sure that it was my master's gospel, the true prophetic staff, and yet it has had no result, because I fear I have not preached it with the vehemence and earnestness in hardiness which ought to have gone with it. And will you not make the same confession that sometimes you have taught the truth? It was the truth, you know it was, the very truth which you found in the Bible and which has at times been precious to your own soul and yet no good result has followed from it because while you taught the truth you did not feel the truth nor feel for the child to whom the truth was addressed but were just like a heavy placing with indifferent hand the prophetic staff upon the face of the child. It was no wonder that you had to say with Gehazi, the child is not awakened, for the true awakening power found no appropriate medium in your lifeless teaching. We are not sure that Gehazi was convinced that the child was really dead. He spoke as if it were only asleep and needed waking. God will not bless those teachers who do not grasp in their hearts the really fallen estate of their children. If you think the child is not really depraved, 
if you indulge foolish notions about the innocence of childhood and the dignity of human nature, it should not surprise you if you remain barren and unfruitful. How can God bless you to work resurrection when, if he did work it by you, you are incapable of perceiving its glorious nature? If the lad had awakened, it would not have surprised Gehazi. He would have thought that he was only startled from an unusually sound sleep. If God were to bless to the conversion of souls the testimony of those who do not believe in the total depravity of man, they would merely say, the gospel is very moralizing and exerts a most beneficial influence, but they would never bless and magnify the regenerating grace by which he who sitteth on the throne maketh all things new. Observe carefully what Elisha did when thus foiled in his first effort. When we fail in one attempt, we must not therefore give up our work. If you have been unsuccessful, my dear brother or sister, until now, you must not infer that you are not called to the work. Any more than Elisha must have concluded that the child could not be restored. The lesson of your non-success is not cease the work, but change the method. It is not the person who is out of place, it is the plan which is unwise. If you have not been able to accomplish what you wished, remember the schoolboy song. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Do not, however, try in the same way unless you are sure that it is the best one. If your first method has been unsuccessful, you must improve upon it. Examine wherein you have failed, and then by changing your mode or your spirit, the Lord may prepare you for a degree of usefulness far beyond your expectation. Elisha, instead of being dispirited when he found that the child was not awake, girded up his loins and hastened with greater vigor to the work before him. Notice where the dead child was placed. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. This was the bed which the hospitality of the Shunammite had prepared for Elisha, the famous bed which, with the table, the stool, and the candlestick, will never be forgotten in the church of God. That famous bed had to be used for a purpose which the good woman little thought of when out of love to the prophet's God she prepared it for the prophet's rest. I like to think of the dead child lying on that bed because it symbolizes the place where our unconverted children must lie if we would have them saved. If we are to be a blessing to them, they must lie in our hearts. They must be our daily and nightly charge. We must take the cases of our children to our silent couch with us. We must think of them in the watches of the night and when we cannot sleep because of care. They must share in those midnight anxieties. Our beds must witness to our cries. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Oh, that the dear boys and girls in my class might become the children of the living God. Elijah and Elisha both teach us that we must not place the child far from us, out of doors, or down below us in a vault of cold forgetfulness. But if we would have him raised to life, we must place him in the warmest sympathies of our hearts. In reading on we find, He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. 
Now the prophet is at his work in right earnest, and we have a noble opportunity of learning from him the secret of raising children from the dead. If you turn to the narrative of Elijah, you will find that Elisha adopted the orthodox method of proceeding, the method of his master Elijah. You will read there, and he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into the loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the woman with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. The great secret lies in a large measure in powerful supplication. He shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. The old proverb is, Every true pulpit is set up in heaven, by which is meant that the true preacher is much with God. If we do not pray to God for a blessing, if the foundation of the pulpit be not laid in private prayer, our open ministry will not be a success. So it is with you. Every real teacher's power must come from on high. If you never enter your closet and shut to the door, if you never plead at the mercy seat for your child, how can you expect that God will honor you in its conversion? It is a very excellent method, I think, actually to take the children one by one into your room alone and pray with them. You will see your children converted when God gives you to individualize their cases and agonize for them and to take them one by one and with the door closed to pray both with them and for them. There is much more influence in prayer privately offered with one than in prayer publicly uttered in the class. Not more influence with God, of course, but more influence with the child. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.